If you're new with us, we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and in chapter 6, Jesus gives what some call the Sermon on the Plain, and we're taking four weeks to, uh, to go through chapter 6. This is the third or fourth week of uh, four weeks, and here we're on a, a very memorable and uh, perhaps uh, to you familiar passage of Scripture uh, related to how we relate to one another within the community of faith. Uh, so let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we study. Father, we pray that you would give us good hearts now, as James said, that we could receive the implanted word with meekness, um, that we may grow in our salvation. We, we pray that now, that you would give us hearts of humility. Give us not only the faculties, the, the ears to hear, but give us hearts to receive, that this word may bear fruit in our lives today and this week and in years to come. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Previous text was hard enough, wasn't it, as Jesus talked to us about loving our enemies. And he said, this is one of the ways that we show that we are sons and daughters of the Most High, is by loving our enemies. And now Jesus pivots to talk uh, more about our relationships within the body of Christ. Uh, that's indicated by the, the use of brother, uh, talking here about brothers and sisters. And this is also one of the ways we reflect the character of our Lord, who embodied the truths that we're looking at. Jesus is using a lot of illustrations in chapter 6, in this text and in next week's text. A number of analogies, very vivid analogy here, of grain being put into a container of a blind person leading a blind person, and this famous speck and log analogy. I think it's, it's, it's right to say that Jesus had a really good sense of humor. Uh, we, we know Jesus had a sense of humor for a number of reasons, one of which is he made you. Right? He, he made me. I mean, just look at the people that Jesus made. Uh, and you know that uh, he, he's not a boring, stale guy, uh, but has quite a personality. But his teaching also carried a sense of humor. We, we don't always catch it, um, but it, and it, it's not like Adam Sandler kind of humor. Uh, it's not knock-knock jokes uh, that Jesus is doing, but he uses irony and sarcasm and surprising punchlines. And he uses hyperbole and, and even some humorous analogies. And, and this text includes one of them uh, with this speck and log. There's a guy named Elton Trueblood who wrote a book called The Humor of Christ, in which he points out the various ways in which Jesus used humor, not to just be a, a comedian, but, but rather to, to, to make points and to bring points home. And there is a purpose behind the analogies here. Jesus says things the way he says them, so that we don't forget them. And that's what a good teacher does, right? I'm sure you've heard things from a great teacher before that you've just, you've never forgotten them because of the way they put it or because of the illustration that they used. I still remember being a kid being taught baseball by a particular coach who says that when you hit, you, you have a glass of water. Imagine a glass of water is on top of your head to, to keep your head still uh, as you're uh, taking the bat through the zone. I've never forgotten that. And Jesus here uses these analogies of the blind leading the blind. We never forget that. Of this idea of a guy with a log coming out of his eye, uh, you know, but picking out the speck in somebody else's eye. It, it's not just for shock value or for um, interest. It's so that we never forget these things. These are very practical truths that Jesus gives us and, and truths that, that really change the whole community should we live them out. It's a wonderful vision of discipleship. Let me give you five applications from this text that Jesus gives us, this remarkable teacher. First of all, do not be judgmental. 
There are actually two commands. They're both negative in verse 37. Judge not, lest you be judged, or you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Now, you don't even have to know much about the Bible to know that, um, you, that, that this verse exists. I mean, th- for some people, this is the most widely known verse in the Bible, uh, often recited in Old English, judge not, lest you be judged. I remember in college, everybody that wanted to justify smoking weed, they had at least two verses, right? Uh, Every seed-bearing plant God made is good, and judge not, lest you be judged. (laughs) That was their great apologetic for for, uh, uh, smoking weed. Um, Our culture... They, they think judging is immoral. It's, it's like the worst sin you could commit today. And so there's all the talk about not being judgmental. You go to Planet Fitness, and on the wall it says, no judgment zone. Right? Uh, which is actually a good, good thing. That's my gym. I should say something good about it. Uh, they, they're trying to encourage people to, to, to work out. And so we need to understand what this means, because it's often used to um, rationalize immoral, ungodly behavior. So this doesn't mean, for example, that we never render a judgment. Uh, In 1 Corinthians, Paul's got all kinds of chaos going on in the church. And uh, it's like an episode of a Jerry Springer show. And uh, he is not cool with it. And he goes on to say in in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? He, He tells them to expel the immoral brother. So obviously this verse cannot be taken to mean that we never render a judgment, that we never make a decision. You and I will make thousands of decisions this upcoming week. It also doesn't mean we never use discernment. Uh, This text itself shows us that. As Jesus says, don't follow a blind guide. (laughs) You don't look at the blind guide and say, well, who am I to judge? You're to not follow the blind guide. So obviously this doesn't mean that we never use discernment, that we never exercise church discipline, or that we, you know, we, we, this doesn't mean we don't need the law courts. Some have taken this to a ridiculous extreme, thinking that they could never serve on a jury. Well, I know the guy threw his wife off a cliff, but who am I to judge? Right? Um, well, that, that's, that's crazy. It doesn't mean we'd overlook the sins of fellow believers or minimize them. In fact, Jesus doesn't tell us to not notice the speck. He simply tells us to first attend to ourselves. So what does this this mean? When Jesus says here, judge not, Jesus is talking about being quick to criticize, being quick to find faults in others. This refers to a judgmental, self-righteous, critical spirit. And Jesus says, don't be that person. Right? He says, he's warning against kind of this fault-finding individual that has a censorious spirit, right? That you want to hold people down in guilt rather than encourage them toward God. Jesus says, my disciples should not be characterized by that. We should never be characterized by a superiority, a harshness, a blindness to our own faults. This is often accompanied by a bitterness that, that, uh, that a person is caught up in. They, they go out finding faults. As John Stott put it well, the censorious critic is a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their plans, and is ungenerous toward their mistakes. That shouldn't be present. 
in the body. Christians through the years have distinguished between essential and non-essential matters of faith. There's a big section on this in Romans 14 and 15 as Paul is talking to the church there that was very diverse and he says you guys have different views on diets and days. How you view food and wine and how you view the Sabbath and he says the church should not be divided over these things. Do not uh, write people off because of some non-essential matter of faith. And notice what's at stake. You will not be judged. This is what scholars call the divine passive to avoid using God's name. But the implication is it is God who is the judge. Do not judge and you will not be judged. If you want to play the judge, Jesus says, you invite God's judgment on yourself. This is because that kind of regular spirit, that kind of regular judgmentalism shows that a person has never truly experienced the mercy and forgiveness that Jesus has given them, right? Because forgiven people forgive people. Recipients of mercy show mercy. This is not a salvation by works. If you don't judge, you go to heaven. This is an evidence that you have experienced the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel. You're not characterized by an unforgiving disposition. You're characterized by a loving disposition. Now added to that is do not condemn. This again, in parallelism, just emphasizing the same point that we are to be merciful people and merciful people are not condemning people. We are those who, who are quick to forgive, quick to show mercy. So this verse doesn't mean that there are no moral absolutes. It doesn't mean that we, we uh, never render a judgment or never make a decision. What Jesus is addressing is this all too common problem of acting with a spirit of uh, criticism, harshness, right, self-righteousness, while being blind to our own failings and failing to rehearse and remember the mercy of God that he has shown to us. Mercy triumphs over judgment, James tells us. We want to be those kinds of people, don't we? All right, secondly, forgive others. Added to these two negative commands, do not judge and do not commit, condemn, are two positive commands, forgive and give. And this, this whole bundle shows us a particular attitude, a particular way of life that should mark a Christian. Kent Hughes, I think, nails it when he, he says, Jesus is calling us to be people who have a magnanimous disposition. I didn't use that word this week um, until, I, until I read his commentary, and you may not know what that word means. It's an old word, magnus meaning great and animus meaning spirit, that Jesus is calling us to be great spirited people. That is generous, big hearted people, forgiving people, not critical, small hearted, not judgmental, but big hearted, generous, forgiving, a magnanimous disposition. So he says forgive. This word means to release or to set free. It's a beautiful picture of, forgive, of forgiveness. What Jesus has done for us is he has set us free. He has released us. And when we forgive others, we are releasing. We're releasing them, releasing the issue, right? It, it, we are setting them free, not holding them captive. And all the while holding ourselves captive, right? We're setting them free and we set ourselves free. It's a wonderful thing to forgive, isn't it? I don't know why my voice went so high right there, but it's a wonderful thing. <laughs> To forgive. 
Right, when we withdraw anger and we refuse to retaliate and act in re- revenge, it is a wonderful thing. Again, this doesn't mean there are no consequences for people's actions. This doesn't mean that reconciliation will always happen. But this, this means that we, we count the cost and we choose to lay down our right to have this offender owe us something. We lay that down. We trust that God will avenge all things. And, and we, we practice the kind of thing that, that God has done for us, namely forgive us. We are forgiven people. It's that beautiful passage at the end of Micah. Who is like you, O God, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He will have compassion on us, the prophet said. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's what God has done with our sin. Where is it? It's in the depth of the sea. I think it was Corey Ten Boom that said, and then God put a no fishing sign up uh, near, near the water. It's gone and you can't dig it up. That's what happens when we forgive people. We, we, we do away with it. We bury it. We reflect the nature of our God who is, un, who, is, who is grateful, or is generous, rather, to the ungrateful. I love Nehemiah in Nehemiah 9, the prayer, where Nehemiah says that our God stands ready to forgive. That's God's disposition toward us. He stands ready to forgive. He's more ready to forgive than we are to confess. And that's the disposition his followers are to have. We are to be ready to forgive, not ready to fight, not ready to want to be owed. Now, this is is very easy to preach. This is very hard to live, isn't it? And this is very important as a church. It's hard to emphasize how important this is. Right? People will disappoint you in this church, like today, right? Maybe this hour. People will sin against you. People will even hurt you. And so will the leaders, and you will do the same. So how in the world do we get along? (laughs) And and to think that the opposite will happen, that it's all going to be a utopian society, is to not understand the doctrine of sin. That's the world we live in. How do we operate in this world? Well, Paul told the church repeatedly in various places that we have to practice forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Or as he told the Colossians, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. I love that Paul says that. You guys are going to have to bear with one another. You know, pastor, if we would all get back to the first century church, we wouldn't have any problems. Paul's right. We wouldn't have a New Testament if we didn't have any problems. He's correcting all the problems, right? And he has to tell these first century Christians, you guys need to put up with each other. And you need to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. It always goes back to Jesus. Remember last week I said we have to live our relationships in a triangular way. It's us, the person, and our God. That's the way forgiveness works. If we don't live in light of the gospel, how how will we do this? What motive will we have to do that? And what power do we have to do that? It's not natural, but it's beautiful. It's powerful to release someone and to release yourself. You know, in in the Hamilton musical, I haven't mentioned in about six months, I think, um, (laughs) forgiveness is called unimaginable. That's what they call forgiveness. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He's done the unimaginable. We walk out of here today free because he set us free. And we don't want to hold other people down in condemnation. 
We want to free them. We want to forgive them. Thirdly, Jesus says, give generously. Do not be judgmental. Forgive others. Give generously. This positive command comes with a a strong illustration. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus gives a promise here to those who are generous. As the old adage goes, you cannot outgive God. You give and he just keeps giving back. Those who are generous receive an abundance. So give. I take this to mean to supply the needs of others, to, to be generous financially and with your resources. And there's a picture here that Jesus gives so that we don't forget the way God responds to our generosity. Now, we shouldn't take this to mean that we're going to get richer if we give, but this is a life of blessing. That There's something more, more blessed than money. That the generous person experiences reward that you, you can't purchase, that come to us spiritually. And so he says, when you give, it will be given. That is, God will give it. Good measure. He doesn't give begrudgingly, meagerly. He gives good measure, pressed down. It's the image of pressing down some grain on a container so that you can put more in, into the container. And then shaken up so that it can all fall to the bottom. And then it's so full it runs over into his lap. The guy has to use his, his cloak with his arms underneath to, to have all of the, of the grain. This is how our God blesses his children. This is how he responds to generosity. Now, I've never went and got grain pressed down before. I don't live in that kind of world. But I've gotten ice cream before. And, and I know what a good ice cream cone looks like, right? I want one that's running over the sides. And if I see somebody that's got one of those, I'm like, where did you get that? That's the ice cream equivalent to a good measure pressed down, shaken together. It's running over, and that is how generous our God is. When you give, you will not be shortchanged. You will not be disappointed. You will enjoy sweet fellowship with God, blessing with God. God is abundant in his generosity. Which is why Paul says, whoever sows sparingly reaps sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully reaps bountifully. It's the principle of generosity. God gives and he gives and he gives and he gives. And he says his disciples are big-hearted, magnanimous people. They love to give, reflecting the very nature of their God, who is a giver. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He calls us to be those those big-hearted people as well. Fourthly, he says that we should be discerning. I think that adequately summarizes verses 39 and 40 as Jesus is talking about the importance of following the right teacher. Recognize the difference in a good teacher and a bad teacher. Verse 39, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. So he gives this parable, and you've heard the saying before, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, the blind leading the blind. It's not going to turn out well, especially in the Middle East where there were a lot of pits and old cisterns. You can imagine walking through the Middle East and falling into a pit. This kind of happened to me last week. I was taking our kids to school 
at Millbrook High School, and there was a wreck, and so they redirected us down a side street, and um, the lead car turned left before he was supposed to. And so we all followed this person, assuming they knew where they were going, and it was like 30 cars going around a cul-de-sac, you know? And uh, my daughter was like, uh, why are we all driving around in the cul-de-sac? And I'm like, it's the blind leading the blind. It's a sermon illustration right here on a, on a Thursday for me. And Jesus says, you don't want to follow the, the wrong teacher. You don't want to follow the wrong guide. He, he called the Pharisees in Matthew 23 blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Another humorous and pointed statement. Don't follow false teachers. Rather, implication he's saying in this moment, follow me. Jesus never leads us into the pit. And then he says in verse 40, here's another reason why you should be discerning in who you follow. You will become like your teacher. You become like your teacher. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. It was commonly understood that uh, in the rabbinic world that you could actually transcend your teacher, where the, the teacher becomes the student. But that never happens with Jesus Christ. We never transcend Jesus. We are always the student. He's always the master. And the goal, this, this text shows us here, the goal of studying the Bible, of being taught by Jesus, is to become like Jesus. Right? That's the goal, that we, that we hear from him, we learn from him, so that we might be like him. And the reality is we all have teachers. We are all being discipled by something or someone. Right? The question is, who is our to follow him? We want to stay connected to his word. Our aim is to be like him. Be discerning in who you follow. And we all know that there are destructive religions, destructive ideologies in society, destructive worldviews that one can come under and go into the pit. And so we want to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. We want to submit to his word. We want to be like him. All right? Now, number five. Jesus says, clear your eyes. And he gives us this famous analogy of the speck and the log. To summarize it, Jesus says, without log elimination. No splinter detection without log elimination. He pokes fun at those who want to reform others, change others, while not being reformed and changed themselves. Notice how he says it. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? but not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your eye? You hypocrite. First, take out the log from your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So he uses this word for a, a beam, a builder's beam, and then another word for a little flake of straw or wood. And the point that Jesus is making here is that we don't set ourselves up as kind of the moral watchdogs without doing this self-examination ourselves, right? He's, he's really calling us here to self-assessment. 
Notice he, he doesn't say that it is wrong to see a speck in the brother's eye, but that should come with a sense of humility. That should come with us first looking at our own lives. How many of you know it's, it's really tempting to spend less time confessing our sin than to talk about what is wrong with other people? Like, I wonder if you put a timer on it. How much time you spent complaining about other people versus how much time you spent confessing sin? What would the disparity be? I don't like that question. Well, I've been in this all week long, okay? You guys can suffer with me for 30 minutes. Uh, you remember when uh, David, he committed that awful sin, committed adultery with uh, Bathsheba, had Uriah, her husband, killed. Nathan the prophet shows up, and he tells, he tells David a little parable. And he says, hey, David, there was this rich guy who had hundreds of sheep, and there was this poor little guy who only had one, one, little, uh, one little sheep, and he uh, treated it like his daughter. And the rich man took that guy's sheep and slaughtered it instead of slaughtering one of his own out of the many sheep that he had. And David says, that guy deserves to die. And Nathan says, you're the man. David, you are noticing a speck when you have a log in your eye. We need to do business with God first before we can see other people clearly and see ourselves clearly. Only then do we have the kind of humility that's needed for that kind of ministry. Are you quick to spot out the specks in people's eye and ignore the big issues in your own life? How can I complain about the dust in someone's eye when I've got a two by four? I have a two by four here. Let me see that two by four. Thanks, Dan. You pick it up okay? Okay. <laughs> now, it's a visual, obviously. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know what's wrong with you people. There's, there's no hope for you, right? Can you imagine walking around with this all day long? And then um, just, I, Daniel, you got, a, you got flake in your eye. No, no, I was just telling you. You got something there, man. Um, or can, can you imagine a, um, a doctor? He's about to do surgery. He gets all scrubbed up, and he's got his gown on, and he's going to take a splinter out of somebody's eye. I don't know how you get a splinter in your eye, but just work with me. And it, it's stuck there in his eye, and he's got a log, right? And he's knocking the nurse out, and he's, you know, like, dude, you can't do surgery Well, you've got a log in your eye. And Jesus says, this is what it looks like when we go around. Thanks, Daniel. Well done. Uh, when we go around looking at all the faults of other people, and we've got this massive beam coming out of our eye. He says, first, take it out of your eye, and then you'll be able to do some real ministry. Now, this is not only true in our personal lives. We can do this as a church. That is to say, we can look at other churches and criticize other churches for not doing things the way we do them. And we need to make sure we take the log out of our eye. We can do this with groups of people. People do this on Twitter regularly, I think. There's not a lot of log elimination, but there's a lot of spec inspection. And Jesus says, when you do this, you are guilty of hypocrisy. It's so, it's so pointed. It's so memorable. 
Think about this. Jesus doesn't want us to ever forget this. Why? Because Jesus is training his disciples to be big-hearted people. He's training his disciples, he's training us so that our instincts will first be to be ready to forgive, to be quick to show mercy, right? Doesn't mean there's no truth. It doesn't mean we don't contend for the truth. Of course we contend for the truth. But it means that we recognize our own failures, our own need of self-examination and repentance, and then, then we can be the kinds of ministers that we need to be for others. This is how Paul put it in Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, so you see something that's in their eye, you who are spiritual, implication you've taken out the beam of your own, should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. That's how you go about doing that work of correction and bringing people back into the fold. Keep a watch on yourself lest you be tempted. You see, that's the kind of, of spirit that we walk in when we want to correct and bring people back into the fold. It's not the spirit of the Pharisees. It's the gentle person who's done business with God first. So Jesus here is revolutionizing how we go about our relationships by telling us to avoid judgmentalism, to forgive others, to be generous, to practice discernment, and to clear out our eyes before helping others with, with the, the thing that's in their eye. Now, as I said earlier, Jesus not only teaches these things, he embodies them. Jesus Christ is not a hypocrite. He's the only person in history that has never been a hypocrite. He always did that which he said he would do. His words, his deeds matched. He's the only person in human history that's never had a speck in his eye. No guile in his mouth, Peter says. He is the sinless son of God who died for people who were judgmental, bitter, unforgiving. He sees us, unlike we can't see everybody, we don't know them like Jesus knows them. He sees us, as Revelation 1 says, with eyes of fire. He knows everything about us. And the one who could cast us off into judgment died for us. He died to cleanse us, to forgive us. He is the ultimate generous one who is going to continue to give throughout eternity to his people. The one who teaches these things embodies these things. Lived it perfectly and then died on behalf of those who would break all of these things, has given us a new nature whereby we can now be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, whereby we can be generous, big-hearted people. And so, church, let's put Jesus' word into practice this week. Let's remember that he is the master. He will never lead us into a pit. You're not following a blind guide when you follow Jesus Christ. He is the guide who will lead you all the way to glory, right? That's who we follow. That's who we keep our eyes on. He's shown us the way. Praise be to God for his word. Let's pray for power to live this vision of discipleship out. Father, we thank you for your word today. I pray that you would make us big-hearted people, people who are filled with mercy, love, kindness, forgiveness. You make us a people, Lord, who are not self-righteous, harsh, who have critical spirits, but one whose heart has been melted by the grace that Jesus has shown us. Lord Jesus, as we think about how you gave and how you forgave, we think about the cross. And we think about that now together as a church as we 
take the Lord's Supper and remind each other of, of what you gave up in order to give us such grace. Increase our gratitude, we pray, even now. In your good name we pray. Amen.